dressed in a dove-gray robe, his hair now done in boyish loops, one either side of his head, the child, his face bathed in tears, pressed his small hands together, knelt down and bowed first toward the east, taking his leave of the deity of the Issei shrine. Then he turned toward the west, began chanting the Nimbutsu, the invocation of Amida's name. The nun then took him in her arms. Confronting him, she said, There's another capital, down there, beneath the waves. So they plunged to the bottom of the thousand-fathomed sea. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, what was that a reading from? That was a reading from a work that is sometimes referred to as the Japanese Iliad. Hmm. The Tale of the Heika, a 14th century epic Japanese poem that recounts the struggles between the Heika and the Genji families for control of medieval Japan. It's a tale of samurai heroes, war, and uh, the tragic fall of the Heike family, with uh, every everything coming to a bloody climax in the sea battle of Dano Ura in 1185. Okay, so that's the sea battle that was said to take place in the 12th century AD. Right. A long time ago at the end of the courtier era, and this would be, I guess, sending us into another era of Japanese history. Right, the era of the shogunate, the, the, the rule of the military class. Now, we should say there are multiple translations of this uh, of this classic epic. This is from the translation by Burton Watson. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, different translate. I looked at a few different ones and they all add a little something uh, different to it. Uh, for instance, sometimes uh, the words are there's another kingdom beneath the waves. Uh, and I kind of like that one a little more. But this seems to be one of the more popular translations out there. So we stuck with it. So why did these why did this child leader and the people around him have to plunge into the ocean? Well, because they were on the losing side. They were on the what turned out to be the the wrong side of uh, of of history mm-hmm. at the time. So this again comes at the end of the Heian period, 794 through 1185, and it was largely a peaceful period. Mm-hmm. Uh the the Genji were weakened in the 1150s following two key power struggles in the court. And the Genji leaders uh, involved were executed, but two young boys were spared, Yoritomo and Yoshitsune. And they, and these uh, guys, they ended up plotting vengeance. Okay. 20 years of Genji dominance followed, but you had all these factions that were plotting against uh, the Heike rule, leading to revolt in 1180. Five years later, they would finish the Heike, bringing an end to the, the court aristocracy and, again, be- beginning this age of uh, the shogunate, the, the rule of the warrior class. And this particular heartbreaking read here, which seriously, every time I've, I've read it in preparation for this podcast, it gives me chill bumps. Yeah. Um, it takes us to the very end. So the, the Heike battle fleet has been annihilated. So the Genji have completely defeated them. Right. The few survivors, uh, the, the warriors and sailors have thrown themselves into the sea uh, to drown instead of being captured. And in this reading, the Lady Ni, grandmother of the emperor, which in this in this translation, she's just she's described as a nun, but that is the grandmother. She takes the seven-year-old emperor Otoku out on a boat and sees that he is not captured by the victors. So they they drown themselves in their defeat, and she consoles him with this line: "There is another capital beneath the waves." Yeah, it's it's haunting and tragic and heartbreaking. Well, the, but it, but it, it seeds this idea mm-hmm. that at least in the boy emperor's mind that he wasn't killing himself but he was like transitioning to another like stage of rule yeah it's 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 a heartbreaking passage for a number of reasons because on one hand they're describing the boy as very regal and king-like uh you know the an almost kind of a holy child emperor mm-hmm. which on one hand makes his decision to uh or, or at least uh acceptance of his fate like a little more beautiful and noble but at the same time you can't help but read that and 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 imagine the alternate view where it's just an it, it, as noble as the the child's birth may be it's just a child he's just a child and he is about to 
to die beneath the, the waves uh, instead of being captured by the enemy. And then there is also this idea that the, the world, uh, the, the actual kingdom uh, is is just so rife with violence and horror at this point that the kingdom beneath the waves, the kingdom of death is is ultimately the better choice, just complete annihilation over trying to live in this sort of world anymore. Yeah, that sadness does come through. But also there is this interesting suggestion of a hierarchy even after they have drowned because yes. what like his servants, the, the samurai who have survived come with him, right? Yes. And they all, they drown themselves as well. You can imagine them in maybe heavy armor drowning in the waves with their master and the boy drowns with them. And the suggestion of, you mentioned that there are a couple different translations of that line. There's another kingdom beneath the waves or another capital beneath the waves. The idea of a capital suggests there's a whole society and a hierarchy within the society and that you will be in this capital here. Like we're going to the we're going to the big boss and Mm -hmm. maybe you'll be the big boss. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, especially after our recent episodes about myths of mer people and beings that live beneath the sea, the the magical uh, ramifications of this are are pretty obvious. The idea that the fallen ruler and uh, his followers will continue to 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 live and thrive in another magical place. Now, this is going to be the bridge to our actual topic today. How are we going to get from this beautiful and sad medieval Japanese epic to some crab biology? So members of the Heike family did survive. Mostly they were women, and the descendants still remember the Battle of Danalura. According to legend, however, the waters near the battle are home to the ghosts of the drowned Heike warriors, and those ghosts take the form of crabs. Whoa. And indeed, there is a variety of crabs to be found in these waters with a curious arrangement of ridges on its back, ridges that seem to form the drastic lines of a grimacing samurai war face as depicted in medieval Japanese art. Yes, and I would say not just the face as depicted in medieval art, but it also somewhat depicts the samurai masks you will sometimes see, like a, yes. where a, a samurai armor suit might have a, a helmet that would have a mask that partially covers the face. Mm-hmm. And the backs of these crabs, the carapace of the crab, looks an awful lot like some of these masks. Yeah, these kind of uh, highly uh, stylized One faces, these sort of demonic war grimaces that you see on the the face plates of the armor. Yeah. So the idea here would be the samurais transformed into crabs or their spirits transformed into crabs. And that if you if you see one of these scuttling along, then you are seeing this uh, this 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 remnant of a fallen samurai warrior. Uh, A pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floor of silent seas. Exactly. Now, of course, before we go too much further, uh, we should let you know this is not the case. Uh, this is the the magical, mythic, uh, legendary connotation of the story, mm-hmm. uh, because certainly, as uh, marine biologist Joel W. Martin points out in his uh, 1993 article, "The Samurai Crab," published in Terra. Uh, the, the myth of crab people off the coast of Japan likely predates the Battle of Danaura, going back at least as far as the 13th century, uh, maybe even before. And as is, as is often the case with myths and legends, it was merely adapted to the Heike after the battle. Okay, so you've got these crabs mm-hmm. that you can pull up off the floor of the Silent Sea in this area, and they look like faces – and so he's saying that probably before this battle, people were pulling up these crabs and saying, I see a face. Yeah. But after the battle, people started to say, not just I see a face, but look, it's the face of those samurai warriors who drowned in these waters. Yeah. And, and it makes makes perfect sense, right? You can apply additional narrative to the to the myth, to the legend here, and it uh, it brings it to new life. But of course, the reality is. You can find these crabs. These crabs are an actual species. They exist. They have nothing to do with ghosts, but they exist. And they really, really do look like faces. Yes. Like a lot. Yeah. We'll try to include some photos of these crabs on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. There is an awesome painting that is included along with Joel Martin's article from 1993. It's a painting by Utagawa Kuniyoshi. And it depicts these these drowned rulers down at the bottom of the ocean, and they've got this this phalanx of crabs coming toward them with those samurai warrior faces on the backs of them, but they're lining up almost as if to serve their new leaders. Yeah. And this painting is awesome. We've got to include this if we can on the landing page because it has this 
this manic, hyperactive, hallucinatory, Hieronymus Bosch kind of energy blasting out of it. This is such a good painting. Yeah, it's it's dramatic with its human elements, but then the crabs uh, add this additional scuttling horror to the whole piece. I love it. And it captures the inherent irony of the the legend of ghosts of samurai warriors becoming becoming crabs because <laughs> such a legend is both haunting and scary and also funny. Crabs are funny, right? I mean, it's yeah. not just me, right? Like other people probably look at crabs and think that's a kind of funny animal. The way they move, their 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 walking styles, the way they wave their their claws around, like it is funny, right? Yeah, yeah, crabs are inherently funny. I mean, the word crab is inherently funny because of the the kr sound uh, in English, but but yeah, the, it's, crabs are fun to look at and uh, and chase and to catch if you if you can catch them. Uh, crabs are tremendous fun and they're delicious. Uh, or at least some varieties of them are delicious. <laughs> yeah, uh, but like you, you can't take a crab ghost or a crab monster too seriously. I think I don't know. Maybe maybe in Japanese culture it's different, but at least for me it's impossible. Like I think of one of my favorite old horror movies from the fifties is Attack of the Crab Monsters, the mm-hmm. Roger Corman movie, uh, which just proves you know. No, if you're talking about killer crabs, it's inherently funny, even if they don't look funny. Well, they have to be gigantic to be perceived as a threat. And so maybe that's part of the horror of the legend here is that the ghosts of the, the samurais are are trapped in this lesser form. They're they're all bluster. You know, a crab will, will wave its claws at you, but mm. all it can really do is run away or maybe pinch you a little bit. It's not an, an actual uh, mortal threat. Well, let's take a look at what this crab species actually is, the one with the supposed samurai face on its carapace. The scientific name of this crab would be Hakea japonica, a formerly known as the Dorope crab until it was officially granted its older and more traditional name of Hakea in 1990. And so it's got these ridges on its back. That's the thing that captures everybody's its, uh, attention. You look on its back, it's got this sh- carapace shell on the top of it, and it looks a lot like a face. What are these ridges that form the face? Are they purely decorative? Well, as Joel W. Martin points out in that uh, that article, sent the samurai crab, uh, they do serve a purpose. They're external indicators of supportive ridges or apodems inside the creature's carapace. These are the places where muscles attach. He points out that these features are subject to, to natural selection, but they occur in, in nearly all members of the crab family, uh, Doripidae, all over the world. At least 17 crab species in two families in the Indo-West Pacific are similar enough to be called Heikigani by locals. This also includes a, a variety of uh, Chinese crab that's known as the ghost or demon-faced crab. Right, and Heikigani, that, that would be the more common name for this crab, Heika, from the story we told. Right. And Gani, the Japanese word for crab, Gani or Kani. All right, so we've established the legend. Mm-hmm. We've established the the biological reality of the crab species. But the lingering question is, is there any connection between the two? And remarkably, uh, there is one uh, or at least a couple of very famous arguments for a connection here, an actual connection between the perceived faces on the crab's backs and the legend of the samurai crabs. Yeah, right. So the question is, we've established what the crab is and and what it looks like, but why does it look that way? How did it come to resemble a samurai mask so strongly? Or rather, maybe, maybe we should ask instead, why do we so strongly believe we see a samurai mask when we see the crab? So to sort those questions out, we're going to have to go to our friend Carl Sagan. That's right. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will introduce Sagan. All right, we're back. So, Robert, I think it's a shame that we're never going to get to have Carl Sagan on the podcast. It's such a loss that he's gone. Yeah, I mean, Carl Sagan was one of the most important science communicators of his time. Uh, For anyone who's not familiar, he lived 1934 through 1996, American astronomer, cosmologist, astrophysicist, astrobiologist, uh, and and, uh, an an author of several books, uh, host of the wonderful uh, uh, TV series Cosmos. Sagan was one of those those great rare people who was actually a great working scientist himself. You know, he was an astronomer. He worked with NASA. He did lots of interesting space research, uh, astrophysics. 
and at the same time was a great science communicator. And those are very different skills. One other name that comes to mind when I think of that, that pairing is Darwin, right? right? Darwin was both a great scientist and a great science communicator. But you don't always have those same two skills in one person. Yeah, I mean, he was, he was intelligent, charismatic. He had the scientific pedigree, but he also had this, uh, this 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 outward passion he was able to uh, to appear on these television shows and you were just instantly uh, enraptured by what he had to say yeah so let's turn to cosmos i want to set the scene it's the fall of 1980 you are settling in to watch episode 2 of this magnificent new pbs science show cosmos it's hosted by sagan whether or not you know sagan by now if you've seen the first episode you're already enraptured uh you want to hear what he has to say next and so episode two of the co- the original Cosmos series in 1980 starts with Sagan telling the story we started with today. He starts to tell the story of the Battle of Dano-Ura and its legendary aftermath. And not only does he tell it, but there is a dramatic reenactment of everything. It's It's beautiful to watch. We'll include a link to this episode of Cosmos on the landing page for this episode. Right. So we're going to quote from Carl Sagan's explanation of what's going on with the crab in the legend. So right. he says... Quote, this legend raises a lovely problem. How does it come about that the face of a warrior is cut on the carapace of a Japanese crab? How could it be? The answer seems to be that humans made this face. But how? Like many other features, the patterns on the back or carapace of this crab are inherited. But among crabs, as among humans, there are many different hereditary lines. Now, suppose, purely by chance, among the distant ancestors of this crab, there came to be one that looked just a little bit like a human face. Long before the Battle of Danaora, he's talking about, fishermen may have been reluctant to eat a crab with a human face. In throwing it back into the sea, they were setting into motion a process of selection— If you're a crab and your carapace is just ordinary, the humans are going to eat you. But if it looked like a face, they'll throw you back, and you'll be able to have lots of nice little baby crabs that all look just like you. As many generations passed, of crabs and fisher folk alike, the crabs with patterns that looked most like a samurai face preferentially survived, until eventually there was produced not just a human face, not just a Japanese face, but the face of a samurai warrior. Now that's that's an incredible idea. Yeah, right? it's it, a, it's the idea of artificial selection. Mm-hmm. Sagan was saying that by accident, the fisher folk of Japan for many generations had been breeding crabs that looked like samurai in the same way that we breed agricultural crops or mm-hmm. agricultural animals for desired traits. You might breed cows or pigs to produce more milk or to have more meat. You might breed dogs to look a certain way or to be more friendly or to herd sheep. You, it would be like if we bred pugs because we didn't want to eat them. We're like, just don't eat any of the dogs that look kind of like grotesque human babies. <laughs> and then you just have pugs running all over the place because they're the, they may be delicious, but they look too much like babies. Right. Well, there's a lot of thought about how we began to breed dogs, right? Mm-hmm. How did domestic dogs become separated from their wolf-like ancestors? And I think a lot of the thinking about that is that the process did not begin intentionally, that we started breeding dogs by accident, selecting for certain traits by accident before we started breeding for certain traits on purpose. For example, we might have been breeding for the wolf-like ancestor of a dog that had more approach behaviors toward humans. Because if this, uh, if it had more approach behaviors toward humans, it would come closer, be more likely to get some scraps from our campsite or something like that. And the dogs that had less approach behaviors toward humans who were more wary and wanted to stay farther away would not get that extra food, would be less likely to survive. And over time, we were accidentally artificially selecting for dogs that like getting close to bipedal primates. And then when we actually begin involving ourselves in the decisions, that's when we, that's when we start saying, well, let's, let's uh, use these dogs that are a little smaller so they can get through the wall and eat the rodents that are uh, disturbing our grain crops, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or just, I mean, it can be purely aesthetic. You might say, this dog is very cute. Mm-hmm. I really like the way it looks. I, I want to see more dogs like it. Let's breed this dog and make it have lots of babies. And then things get out of control and you wind up with the pug anyway. Right. 
if only you could see the pug equivalent of of what our agricultural crops look like genetically, <laughs> you know, the, the, the crazy breeding processes that have gone into creating the bananas and the corn and all the stuff we eat. It's one of the funny things about uh, people's complaints about genetically modified organisms in mm-hmm. food crops is that the food crops we eat today are so amazingly genetically modified from their ancestral natural variants. Yeah, it's a little late in the game in many respects to to start saying, oh, well, we don't want to, we don't want to control or dictate uh, what these organisms uh, 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 manifest as. Like we've been doing that throughout recorded history and uh, before recorded history. Yeah, but anyway, we need to get back to the crabs. Yes. So Sagan is talking about the fact that this is a, this is an idea. It's a hypothesis to explain why the carapace of this crab looks so much like a human face and specifically so much like a samurai face. That it's not just a coincidence, but that it has been artificially selected for by human sorting practices in fishing. Now, Sagan was not the originator of this idea. No, Sagan's idea apparently comes originally from the British zoologist Sir Julian Huxley of the uh, of the famous Huxley family. That's right. He was the grandson of T.H. Huxley, also known as Darwin's bulldog. Right. And so Huxley wrote an article that was actually, believe it or not, published in Life magazine ah. in, on June 30th, 1952. And reading the words of Julian Huxley in Life magazine in 1952 is really funny because I found a scan of the original magazine <laughs> and it's got all these like carnation instant milk ads right across from him and the like parred dog food ads. Yeah, and weird weird recipes of the 50s that involved what cooking uh – uh, cooking tuna with right. uh, with with carnation instant milk. Yeah, it's like you, only carnation instant <laughs> milk will make this amazing tuna casserole. Oh. Anyway, so he's writing in life and he writes the same idea in an article that's more generally about imitation in nature. But he writes, quote, the resemblance of Dorope, and remember that was the original, that was the name they were using for this crab back then. Mm-hmm. The resemblance of Dorope to an angry Japanese warrior is far too specific and far too detailed to be accidental. It came about because those crabs with a more perfect resemblance to a warrior's face were less frequently eaten than the others. So again, this is an elegant theory. You know, it, it it makes a certain amount of logical sense. We can all envision the scenario taking place even without uh, a, a, a dramatic uh, reinterpretation from Cosmos. Right. We can, we can see the, the fisher folk pulling up these crabs, looking at them and going, oh, that one's – Looks a little bit too much like a face uh, for me to eat it. I'm just going to throw it back and we'll just see what the next one looks like. Right. I mean, you can imagine that any food animal that looked unnaturally human probably would end up getting selected for in this way, right? Right. But is it really true? Yeah. (laughs) Does it stand uh, the the test of time and the test of uh, additional inquiry into the, the origins of the crab's a weird samurai face. Right. So for the rest of the episode, we're going to try to address this question. Is the Sagan-Huxley hypothesis correct? Was it actually artificial selection by fisher folk being creeped out by faces that made the crabs look like this? Or is it just a coincidence? And if it's just a coincidence, what explains this striking resemblance? Well, I've already mentioned uh, marine biologist uh, Joel W. Martin's uh, article, and he drops one fact that I think definitely uh, 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 is an argument against the idea that that humans were were uh, artificially selecting uh, for these uh, these faces on the crabs, and that's that we have fossils of doripid crabs or closely related crab species that date back to times before the emergence of humans. Oh, okay. So if these crabs were, or if some related crabs were looking like human faces before humans could have been selecting for them, that's definitely going to be a mark against the artificial selection hypothesis. Right. Unless you take – you'd have to go through – you know, jump through elaborate hoops to say, well, what if an alien species came down, saw the faces of uh, of, of existing <laughs> hominids, or perhaps uh, they had hominid uh, uh, facial features themselves, and then they engineered it into the backs of the crab, etc. You'd have to have some sort of elaborate explanation like that that uh, that, that breaks uh, multiple uh, uh, rules of the natural world. Then again, this doesn't necessarily kill the hypothesis because you could say that though some related crabs in this family have some features on their backs that do look kind of like faces, the striking resemblance of the, the hakea crab specifically 
to a samurai warrior face could have been honed by artificial selection over time, right? The, right. There might have been an initial resemblance that was sharpened by artificial selection. Exactly. Now, another huge uh, uh, detail worth considering, though, according to Martin, is that and this one's really hard to shake. Uh, fisher folk are not in the habit of catching these crabs at all because they only reach a size of about 31 millimeters or 1.2 inches. I want to come back to that point uh, when I get into another criticism in a bit. Yes. Yeah, I have some I have some additional notes on that as well. Uh, but the idea here is that they're not really worth the trouble of retrieving from the nets, uh, let alone sorting through to see which ones resemble a face or not, because ultimately you don't care because you, you, you have no culinary use for them. I mean, my very brief argument against this is how about popcorn shrimp? All right, we'll return to this in a minute, this idea of, of eating the samurai uh, crabs. But, well, what does what does Richard Dawkins have to say? What does Papa Dawkins have to share on this topic? Well, Dawkins has an interesting take on it. So... Dawkins has a section on Hekia Japonica in his 2009 book, The Greatest Show on Earth, which I would recommend. That's a really good – that's like after he got done talking about religion for a while and went back to writing awesome biology books. <laughs> so when Dawkins brings up the theory, he mentions first that he says it's, quote, a lovely theory, too good to easily die. But then he goes on to undercut it. So he describes coming across an online poll which allows you to say which of the following you believe. Now, Robert, you think about the options here. Okay. First option, the Sagan-Huxley theory is correct. 31% of respondents agreed with that. The next is the photos of the crabs resembling samurai are fakes. 15% <laughs> said that. That's obviously not true. There yeah, are tons of these photos. Yeah, it seems a bit high. I mean, the photos – don't look particularly faked. Maybe they're thinking they're like creations. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe there, maybe there was some particular photo that was faked or enhanced. I, hmm. I've never heard of this, but no, there are tons of these photos, and they're they're obviously not fakes. Uh, next answer: the shells have been carved to look that way. Six percent of respondents said this. I think that's obviously not true. Right. The next one is, it's just a coincidence. 38% said this. So the, it does look like a face, but it's just a coincidence. There's right. no selection going on for that. And then finally, the crabs really are drowned samurai warriors. 10% said this. <laughs> I love how that, that scored, there, there was a higher score for that than for carved, uh, crab shells. Which, granted, I don't buy the, the car. I don't see the, the the argument for this being a carving, mm -hmm. but that makes far more logical sense than the idea <laughs> that these are actual ghosts. I don't know. I mean, you know, which is more likely? Car no, wait a minute. I guess you're right. May or maybe, <laughs> maybe uh, people who took the poll were just angry at the end of it, and they're like, right. I, "I can't believe I wasted my time on this." I'll tell you what, I'm going to vote for the ghosts. Right. So Dawkins writes, "Quote: I'm afraid I voted with the killjoys. I think, on balance, that the resemblance is probably a coincidence." And Dawkins cites some reasons for saying this. First of all, he a couple that he cites as weaker, minor reasons. First of all, as we said, Martin pointed out in the article we mentioned earlier, the face-like ridges and grooves on the crab's carapace actually correspond directly to underlying muscle attachments. Now, this wouldn't mean that they can't have been sharpened by artificial selection, but it does show that they're not merely meaningless decorations that serve no purpose of their own and could be, you know, selected for in any direction. They are actually just a byproduct of a necessary part of the crab's muscle anatomy. Right. And, and we also have to remember that there is nothing inherently holy or divine about the human face it is just it is just the it's just what our our frontal um, sensory array looks like you know it's kind of an overstatement of the obvious but it's easy to miss that i think that that this is not the face of a primordial god who then created uh, people in his image this is just what uh, our particular species of primate happens to have uh, on the front of its skull. Yeah, you need some light-sensitive organs. You've got two of them for depth perception, and then you need something that can chew up stuff. Right. It's achieving one set of goals. The back of, a cra of this crab is achieving another set of goals. And if those solutions should look vaguely familiar or remind, uh, or remind you of the other, then, uh, then yeah, that that's coincidence. Well, I think one of the things you're pointing out here is that the the things that cue to us as faces 
can be incredibly simple and don't have to depart from randomness all that much. Oh, yeah. Like two dots in a line cues us to, as face. Right. Yeah. It's it, we, we create faces all the time and we see them in everything. Yeah. And this will be a big point we'll come back to in just a minute. A next point that Dawkins makes is that the Hakia crabs are too small to keep, right? This is another thing that Martin was sort of alluding to. Mm -hmm. They're too small to keep and crab catchers would simply throw them back regardless of what designs they had on their backs simply because they don't have enough meat. So first of all, I was thinking, okay, is this true? Uh, we don't know how big they get, but there was a photo that Martin included with his article from 1993 it's of a male specimen caught in Ariaki Bay off Kyushu in Japan in 1968. And you can definitely see the samurai face. It looks like a samurai, but how big is it? The total width of the crab's back is at the widest point, 20.4 millimeters or 0 0.8 inches. Now, that's less wide than you mentioned earlier. It sounds like it could get up to a little over an inch or about 30 millimeters. Mm -hmm. uh, that's That's not a very big crab. It, it, I, I was like trying to imagine like cracking the shell to get the meat out of a crab that's about an inch wide. Yeah, even a fair size crab, if you're if you're if you're uh, you're cracking open enough of them, it it begins to feel like an awful lot of work for the the meaty returns that you're getting. Yeah, so would they keep a crab like that? I'm I'm not sure. It seems pretty small. Then again, I can't pretend to know the fishing practices of historical Japan. Well, uh, it, I, I can't either, but I, I do have an illuminating fact on just how inedible a small crab can be. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, we need to consider the plight of the green crab. Okay, take me to the green crab. All right, this is a native of the northeast Atlantic Ocean and Baltic Sea, but it's an invasive species everywhere else, including New England. So these guys are roughly 90 millimeters or 3.5 inches in size. And while it's tempting to say, well, let's just eat these things. They're the enemy. They're invasive. Let's just eat them up in the right. same way that we've, for instance, promoted the consumption um, of lionfish, mm -hmm. uh, which are also in invasive in many areas. But they're simply too small to get any meat off of through traditional methods. But since there's a, <laughs> I'm just imagining it like a scene in a comedy movie where somebody brings you tiny crabs and gives you the little cracker yeah. things, and you're working the nutcracker on something you can barely keep in your fingers. Yeah, you'd you'd like have to use tweezers or something, right? But of course, since there's a reason to wage hungry war on the green crab, some chefs have started turning them into stock. Oh, okay, so yeah, that's, that's that makes one sense. potential approach there. And then there's also a Canadian startup called Can Chine that. Uh, uh, has experimented with using a prototype machine uh, to suck the meat out Gross. of the green crabs. Uh, now, and industrial meat production, that's always the best thing to learn <laughs> the details of. But uh, industrial is key. Like we're, we're talking about modern uh, advancements that would be necessary. Like the, this was uh, – this all these details are from a 2015 article, Green Crabs Are Multiplying, Should We Eat Them? by Roger Warner for the Boston Globe. Mm -hmm. But – you know, and it's been a few years, but it still paints a picture of – our ability to consume these small crabs still depends on technology that we haven't quite yet developed. Uh, he points out that in another another solution here would be to catch the crabs molting, essentially have soft-shell green crab that you could indeed fry up in the same way that we, you, you fry up a soft-shell crab. Uh, this is, of course, the molting phase. But you'd have to catch them in the molting Right. Process. You have to catch them at just the right moment. And uh, – as of 2015, they were only experiencing a 56 to 61 percent success rate, and uh, Warner says that we would definitely have to improve that success rate uh, before this would be a like a feasible source of crab meat. You know, the point you made that's actually sticking with me the most is just the idea of using them for stock. I don't know why I didn't even think that. Like, you you don't necessarily have to be able to get the meat out of it for it to provide some kind of culinary usage. I mean, people could use a – in the same way that people use a whole bunch of uh, seafood products that are not really themselves edible to create stock like bones and stuff like that. You mm -hmm. make the stock, you strain them out. You could put a bunch of tiny crabs in a pot, uh, make some stock and then strain them out. I assume like if they didn't have some kind of bad taste or, or mess up the water somehow. Yeah, but still with the green crab, it, it seems that this is a case where certain chefs who are trying to solve the problem that are, that are saying, hey, what can we do with this invasive creature? They have turned to making stock out of them and it's supposedly delicious, but I suppose it is not a great reason in and of itself, uh, certainly for uh, Japanese uh, fisher folk uh, of yore to go out there and catch them. Then again, I've got to come back at you. 
I, I was wondering how small of a crab people would normally eat in Japan. Okay. Uh, first, I actually did try to look up fishing practices of medieval Japan and I couldn't find any details about anything uh, or at least nothing about how small of a crab people would keep. But I did find a Japan Times food and drink article from 2002 called In a Pinch, These Will Do Just Fine. Ha! That's by, a good title. <laughs> by Rick Lapointe. Uh, it's about the culinary uses of freshwater crab species called sawagani, meaning marsh crab or river crab, and the mokuzugani or the mitten crab. Now, sawagani in particular is tiny, barely three centimeters long as an adult. And LaPointe writes, quote, Sawagani range in color from deep purple to blue to bright crimson. They are a treat all summer long, usually available from late May. Not often seen in local supermarkets, Sawagani are sold in larger retail food markets and at any good fish purveyor. As with Mukuzugani, Sawagani must be cooked thoroughly before being served. These little crab are eaten whole as a rule and are usually fried briefly so the crisp shell and all the legs may be eaten. So, so they fry, they fry them or braise them, eat them whole, eat the whole shell. Oh wow! So they're just they're small enough to where their shell is just not that thick, or it's kind of because normally you only hear of this with with soft shell crab, yeah. uh, where the, the shell, uh, the new shell has not yet developed. Yeah, and so this article ends with a recipe actually for braised sweet, okay. sweet and salty sawagani with sake, soy sauce, sugar, and chili powder. It sounds kind of good. It does. I'm 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 suddenly uh, hungry for crab. Now, I don't know if it's possible to eat heikagani in the same way, the, the samurai crab. Maybe the taste or the texture would be different in a way that would make this impossible. Maybe the shell's too hard or something. I looked all over the place for recipes or similar stories featuring heikagani, and I couldn't find anything. No, there, there were no results I could find for heikagani recipes or ways of preparing them, culinary traditions. So I guess it's possible that this could be for cultural reasons rather than there being some problem with their bodies making them inedible, but I found nothing. All right, let's take another break, and when we come back, we will continue to explore uh, the, uh, the, the mystery of the samurai crab. All right, we're back. Okay, so we finally are going to get to what Dawkins cites as his main reason for rejecting the Huxley-Sagan theory. Are you ready, Robert? Let's do it. Dawkins writes, quote, My main reason for skepticism about the Huxley-Sagan theory is that the human brain is demonstrably eager to see faces in random patterns. As we know from scientific evidence, on top of the numerous legends about the faces of Jesus or the Virgin Mary or Mother Teresa being seen on slices of toast or pizzas or patches of damp on a wall... <laughs> This eagerness is enhanced if the pattern departs from randomness in the specific direction of being symmetrical. All crabs except hermit crabs are symmetrical anyway. I reluctantly suspect that the resemblance of Hekia to a samurai warrior is no more than an accident, much as I would like to believe that it has been enhanced by natural selection. This phenomenon that Dawkins is talking about is called pareidolia, and it is the tendency that humans have to see information in random noise. So when you see a face in the side of a tree mm -hmm. or you see the shape of an animal in the clouds or anything like that, things that are actually just random patterns in nature and have no top-down control or no information encoded to them still read as information to us. Yeah, an example of this, uh, too, in the animal realm uh, goes back to our recent Animal Lies episode where we talked about the death's, uh, the, the, the death's head moth, the mm -hmm. death's head hawk moth, uh, where we just can't get over this skull on its back. Uh, but there's not really there's not there aren't really a lot of great arguments uh, as to why it is there. Yeah. So pareidolia would be the theory that says, OK, there is no it's not actually a skull on its back. It hasn't been selected to look like a skull in, an, in any way. We're just reading information that's not really there because we're primed to look for that kind of stuff. Right. And obsess about it. And so Dawkins argument here is essentially that pareidolia is so strong that the departure from randomness need not be especially unlikely before we start seeing faces in it. I want to phrase the argument another way to try to make it more more specific and measurable. Imagine two different scenarios. Scenario one, if these crabs were being born with a nearly 100% photorealistic image of Toshiro Mifune's character from Yojimbo on their backs. <laughs> 
Try to imagine that, right? Okay. You pull a crab out of the ocean and it has a photoreal copy of a samurai face on it. That would be so unlikely to happen naturally or by coincidence, you would have to invoke some kind of special narrow type of selection, right? Like you'd have to say, okay, somebody 3D printed this crab carapace and put it back in the ocean or there's some kind of crazy genetic engineering of crabs going on. It has to be artificial. And the reason it has to be artificial is that it is such a strong departure from randomness, right? There's no way a photorealistic image like that could happen by chance. Right. It must be the work of the gods. Or the humans. Right. They're, they're both big samurai uh, film buffs, so, you know, right. either one. Another scenario. If a crab just had two dots positioned above a curved line, making a crude approximation of like a stick figure smiley face, you would not think that this needed to be selected for, right? It would be so it, – it's, it's so close to random mm-hmm. that you wouldn't need to invoke any special selection to explain it. Now, we're obviously with the Heikagani crab, we're somewhere between those two scenarios. It's not a photorealistic image of a famous samurai character, but it's also not just two dots with a line or a smiley face. And so the question is, which of the scenarios is it closer to? Is it closer to randomness than we're giving it credit for? Or is it closer to a real departure from randomness than we're giving it credit for? Interesting. This, of course, reminds me of, of various conspiracy theories uh, that are out there. You know, like it, it falls into this area where if you if you squint or if you just you turn off certain logic uh, um, toggles in your brain, then it then it can begin to make a perfect kind of sense. Yeah. You know, uh, but there's something about the the ambiguity of it. That gives it power. Yeah. Now, of course, in Dawkins' argument, we'd have to notice that in both of these scenarios I just mentioned, the crude smiley face or the photorealistic image, in both of them we see a face. Mm -hmm. So we're simply wired to see faces in random designs. And so Dawkins thinks that the crab's carapace is closer to scenario two, the almost random smiley face, than it is to scenario one, the photorealistic face. It's not actually all that strong a departure from randomness, and yet we see the face anyway because that's what we do. It's what we're wired for. But then again, remember Huxley's claim. Huxley said specifically, the resemblance of Dorope to an angry Japanese warrior is far too specific and too detailed to be accidental. So we've got we've got Dawkins and Huxley at odds here. Mm-hmm. Huxley says it's too specific to be a coincidence. Dawkins says it's probably a co- coincidence and we're just overinterpreting it. How do we know who's right here? Well, certainly we can we, we can go back to some of the other facts we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Sort of the the time frame, the brief uh, period in which samurai art is a thing, or even human faces are a thing, versus the the larger time scale of of crab evolution. But then also we can look to this particular uh, to to our particular uh, propensity to see faces and things. Like how strong is this effect? Exactly. So we can come at it from both angles. We can look at what's the chance that the crab would look like that anyway from a biological perspective. And we can look at what's the chance that humans would see faces and things that really don't have mm-hmm. hardly a face at all on them. And so let's look at the latter. Let's look at this idea of pareidolia. How strong and prevalent is the pareidolia effect? I want to consult a few studies. There are some that don't quite fit because they've got odd methodology. But a lot of the pareidolia studies will work like this. Like you've got a image on a screen mm-hmm. that has a that has pure noise on it, just like random snow static or randomly generated static by some algorithm. And you ask people, do you see a letter in the encoded in the static or do you see a face? And sometimes the people who are doing these experiments will prime you. In fact, in all the examples I could find, they were priming people saying, if you see a face in these pictures, tell us when you see a face or tell us what kind of face you see. Like one of the studies had faces encoded in the uh, in the static, but the faces didn't have any mouths. And they were asking people, do you see a smiling face or a not smiling face? Oh, okay. So one story, for example, was by Corey Rieth et al. in uh, Perception in 2011 called Faces in the Mist, Illusory Face and Letter Detection. This had hundreds of participants, and the study looked at, among other things, what features of random noise images tended to suggest faces and letters. And in this study, after a training period with different types of images, participants were asked to look at whether images had letters or faces embedded in them. And there were three experiments with pure noise images, and participants 
participants thought that there were letters embedded in 36% of the images when they were suggested that was a possibility, and participants thought there were faces embedded in between 32 and 36% of pure noise images, depending on whether or not there was an oval in the middle of the image bounding where the face was supposed to appear. So it looks like there you're showing people pure noise, there's nothing encoded in it, and at least 32% of the time, if there's a suggestion that there could be a face, people think they see a face. Another study from 2014 by Zhang Gang Liu uh, et al. called Seeing Jesus in Toast, Neural and Behavioral Correlates of Face Pareidolia. The purpose of this study was to, quote, explore face-specific behavioral and neural responses during illusory face processing. In other words, they were trying to see, okay, we know people sometimes see faces that aren't there. What's happening in their brains when they see faces that aren't there? And so the participants were 20 healthy Chinese adults, and they were shown images composed of pure noise, like random grayscale patternings. The researchers led them to believe that 50% of the pure noise images they were seeing contained either images of letters or of faces. And under these conditions, looking at pure randomness but being told it might contain a face, participants said they saw letters in 38% of the images and faces in 34% of the images. So that's really close to the figures in the last study, right? It's Mm -hmm. like 30-something percent of the time, if you're told a face might be there and there's nothing there, you will see a face. Anyway, there's a lot of interesting stuff explored in the research apart from just whether we detect faces and randomness, and I think it might be worth coming back to do a whole episode on the neuroscience of pareidolia in the future. Uh, in the past, I've thought about this in terms of, say, staring into a dark wood. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Where you, the one thing you don't want to see is a creepy witch face or troll face staring out at you from the dark. What if you do want to see that? Well, then my advice is to keep staring (laughs) because I'll often have that effect where I'm staring into into the woods. I mean, not often. I don't go out every night and stare into the woods. But Uh there are times when I've I've done that where I'm staring into the woods, sort of checking it out, and I'll think, what if I see a witch face? And then I'll, I'll, I'll know intrinsically if I keep looking, I'm going to see something that I could interpret as a witch face. And it's going to spiral out of control. I need to stop staring into the uh, into the darkness of the woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's an interesting theory that a lot of these pareidolia studies are based on, and it's the idea of studying a black box through random noise, using mm-hmm. noise to study what's inside a black box. So if there's something like a brain or a computer that we don't understand the programming of – And you want to understand how it works. You can't like get inside it and cut it up and understand how it works. But what you could do is that you can stimulate it with nothing Hmm. and see what it generates on its own to sort of like understand what the base level algorithm – what the base level algorithms are, what they generate when there's no real input. So one example of using – of studying the human mind like this would be the sensory deprivation tank. You put a human in a sensory deprivation tank to see where the mind goes when there's no input to base output on. Yeah, because we have evolved to thrive in a world of of stimuli, of changing stimuli. And if you take that out of the equation, then uh, all of our sensory feelers are just pawing around at nothing. Uh, But they're going to – they they can still interpret a form in the nothing. Yeah. But that's an interesting way of learning about the nature of the mind, right? Mm -hmm. When you take away all stimuli, you start to learn, well, what's going on at the base level in my mind? What, what What will it churn up when there's nothing coming in? And so a similar thing would be showing somebody randomness. Now, these studies aren't exactly pure randomness. They're not totally black boxes because they're always priming the participants. They're always saying, like, you might see a face. Tell me if you see a face in this image. And under those conditions, it looks like when you show people random noise that has no information in it and tell them there might be a face, 30-something percent of the time, people tend to see a face. That sounds like pareidolia is naturally pretty strong. Yeah. Under people even who are not like prone to hallucinations or anything. So I think that's probably a point in in favor of Dawkins' explanation. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it in terms of human evolution and what and what is valuable environmental information – 
you know, few things are more important than the presence of another organism. Yeah. Because it could be a prey organism. It could be a predator organism. It could be a member of your own species, which brings with it a number of different possibilities that tie into your survival. Right. Especially if it's a member of your own species and you are a social animal yes. like we are. Like I, I'm very convinced by the idea that social behavior and managing social relationships is one of the primary factors that shaped the evolution of the anatomically modern human brain. Right. And uh, I mentioned earlier, I referred to the human face as a sensory array. Yeah. Uh, and, and part of that goes beyond just because just beyond the, the fact that it is where uh, our sense organs are, um, are, are grouped together. We also use facial expressions and micro expressions to communicate with one another. It's and uh, and we depend on it far more than uh, than other primates that have, say, more uniform facial features. Uh, our faces are have, have evolved to to help convey meaning to other members of our species. Yes, totally. But also our brains have evolved to be on hyper alert for faces. Yes. So it's not – I mean, pareidolia appears to be strong for all kinds of things, but faces are one of these things that we're especially looking for. There are dedicated pathways and structures within the brain – that are on alert to see a face and to start interpreting what's up with the face when you see it. Yes, and then what kind of intent is behind it. So it's, it's not that irrational, really, to imagine plucking a crab out of the sea, looking at it and saying, ooh, this crab has a face on its back and I think it's angry at me. Yeah. Now, one last point I want to talk about uh, against the artificial selection hypothesis that I thought was very interesting and very straightforward and simple. I came across this one in a short 2010 blog post by an invertebrate biologist named Michael Bach. And we've been talking about the Hekagani crab specifically, but the Hekagani crab is a member of a whole family of crabs called Duripidae. Uh, we, might, we might have mentioned Duripidae earlier, but we mm-hmm. need to remember there are all kinds of related crabs. And what Bach pointed out is – a variety of crabs from the Duripidae family all have human-looking faces on their backs, and lots of these crabs don't even exist in human fisheries. Oh, wow. So there's no tradition of humans catching them and potentially keeping or releasing them based on the designs on their backs. Right. There's no way they could have been shaped by artificial selection, and yet they look like faces anyway. So to – test this out for myself. I wanted to look up other crabs in the Duripidae family. It is, it does appear to be a pretty obscure crab family. It's not stuff that has, you know, like really storied species, lots of articles mm-hmm. about them. But I did discover to my delight, there is an internet crab database. Huh. Thank the gods for such a thing. A internet crab database. And some of the entries have images with them. So I wanted before we wrap up to look at a little more Peridolia bait from family Duripidae. So first I've included a picture for us to look at of Duripidae quadridens. What does this look like? Uh, this one looks kind of like Darth Maul or oh, perhaps I like a giraffe. It. Yeah, it looks like Darth Maul. It also kind of looks like a spider face. Do you see that? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard not to look at a crab and get a certain certain uh, arachnid uh, feel for them, right? Well, we're looking at a crab top down, but it looks sort of like Shelob faced on. Yeah, know? it does. Mm-hmm. How about Duripoides fascino? What does this look like? All right. Well, this one definitely has kind of a samurai mask look to it, but also it reminded me a lot of the character Panda Baba from Star Wars. I this don't is know the, the walrus looking character in the cantina. Oh, you're yeah. With the right. big bug eyes. Yeah, he doesn't like you. That yes. guy? Mm-hmm. That one. That's what I see. I see like a, a stylized samurai version of that character in this crab. I see straight up predator mask. Do you <laughs> well, see that, it? Yeah, yeah. The now predator. That you it. You know, a lot of this reminds me of that 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 common scenario where you're looking up at the clouds uh-huh. with a friend, and one person sees this animal or this face or this object, and then you see another one. And uh, when you when you present the data to someone, they're like, oh, "Yeah, I can see that. I can see a unicorn. I was seeing a I was seeing a whale, but now I can see the unicorn, and now I can't unsee the unicorn." So I've primed you for predators now. Yeah. Okay. Now I, we got to look at a couple of pictures of Medorope lenata. What do you see here, Robert? Uh, this one reminds me of some of the uh, the creatures in uh, the movie The Giver. Did you ever see that? No, I've never seen that. Which So we've got two pictures. One, it's sort of standing up and it's 
it looks like a face to me, but it's got its swimming legs hanging off the back and they're sort of uh, hairy looking. So it actually looks like a person with like a Fu Manchu mustache. Oh, see, well, when I looked at this picture, it I, I saw it looked like it's flipping. It's giving the bird like double birds. Oh, it's got the fingers coming up in yeah. the air. So, yeah, it's somebody with a big, long Fu Manchu mustache, but it's also flipping the birds up in the air. See, I mainly saw Stone Cold Steve Austin when I looked at it because of the fingers. But then the next one that you shared, this one is the one that re- reminds me of the Giver, one that's more of a picture of its face. Mm-hmm. Uh, bringing it all back home, to me, that looks like the villain, the giant crab in Attack of the Crab Monsters, because it has these kind of sad, droopy human <laughs> eyes. It does look like that, yeah. It reminds me a lot of uh, of this uh, movie that has come up before, um, I think on the podcast, but definitely on the, the Trailer Talk video series that we did for a while. Well, anyway, as, as Bach points out in his blog post... All these crabs, to some extent, look like human faces. Not all of them could have been shaped by fisher folk. So while I would not rule out the possibility that certain species of crabs with, you know, symmetry on their backs and things that look kind of like faces could have been honed by artificial selection. It's, it's possible that fishing practices and throwing things back could have maybe sharpened the features. I wouldn't use that to explain the emergence of the features themselves, right? Yeah, that that's pretty much my read on it too. Like w- the 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 situation that that Sagan especially is laying out here is not at all unbelievable or or, or unscientific. It's it, just not necessary. Yeah, and the and the the evidence against it seems a little too strong. Yeah. And it's not necessary and if it's not necessary in science that means it doesn't pass the test of parsimony. Right. It's it's you don't need to invoke explanations that are not required. Right. It's like again involving an alien species visiting the earth and and uh, doodling faces on the backs of the crabs. Right. It's more plausible than that, but it's still just as unnecessary. Right. Uh, now, I, I also need to point out again, though, that artificial selection is definitely a thing. We already discussed uh, uh, the selective breeding of various uh, organisms for human purposes, everything from horses and cattle to crops to domestic dog breeds. There's also some evidence for the artificial selection of tuskless elephants due to human poaching. Yeah. Oh, artificial selection is absolutely something mm-hmm. that happens all the time. And so that feeds into another thing I want to say, which is that I feel really disappointed to lose this theory. It feels sad. It's such a it's a wonderful, beautiful yeah. explanation of an actual scientific reality. Yeah, and I know we're not alone. Like Dawkins commented that the Huxley slash Sagan story was quote lovely, and he hated that he had to disagree with it. And I see other writers and scientists around the web expressing similar feelings. They're like, oh, it's probably not correct, but I hate to say that. I mm-hmm. really want it to be true. Why do we hate to lose the this explanatory story about artificial selection? Like, it's not necessary to provide an example of anything. We, we have a million examples of artificial selection without it. So why can't we bear to let it go? Because I think I think it's that, first of all, it's the accidental aspect of it. The yes, idea that we're yes. just we're doing it. And we're not even realizing we're doing it, that we're. We're behaving as mad gods yeah, it, <laughs> without it, realizing it. It's artificial selection working without the knowledge of the breeders. Yeah. Like all of the magic of intention is removed. And this actually does call, call into question the very concept of artificial selection, right? Why do we have a different category for changes that we make to organisms on purpose over time versus changes that happen to organisms uh due to pressures from different organisms over time like so if a dog or if a if a dog ancestor and mm-hmm. you know some kind of ancestral wolf is shaped by the evolution of a different species so one of its prey animals or some animal that could hurt it ends up shaping the the evolution of this canid over time you wouldn't call that artificial you'd call it natural but if another organism that is a relatively smooth bipedal primate shapes the evolution of that dog. For some reason, that's the one exception we make, and we call that artificial selection instead of natural. Maybe it's all natural selection. We are animals, too. And the the selection pressures that we exert on the natural world are an outgrowth of our genotype and our phenotype. Well, you know, there's there's one example from uh, the natural world, especially, that we should consider coming back to, and that is uh, uh, that of leafcutter ants. Yeah. You have a creature here with essentially an agricultural product. Yeah, absolutely. So is the agricultural product that is farmed by the ant – an example of artificial selection? I don't think so, right? 
Mm-hmm. You'd still say that that's natural. So if that's natural, why aren't all the things that we breed, whether intentionally or unintentionally, natural as well? Well, I, I think on one level, it's uh, there's the there's the fact that humans can do things to to an, an extreme level that other species cannot do. You know, we can. Well, I don't know if I'd agree with you there because the. I mean, other species can shape the animals and the organisms they interact with in really extreme and strange ways, right? Yeah, but I mean, certainly other organisms can cause other organisms to go extinct. They can, they can and do change their natural habitat. But can you, I mean, but, but the the sheer scope of human change. Yeah. I mean, the, the sheer, amount of change that we have brought about in the world during our brief time on this on this earth we probably shape the evolution of other organisms maybe more than does any other organism on earth outside of microbes and then there's also the added level that we do so we 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 achieve this change via our conscious understanding of the world yeah i guess consciousness is what's key here mm-hmm. and in that sense then if the Sagan-Huxley theory were correct, then then it wouldn't be artificial selection, would it? Because they weren't doing it on purpose. Yeah, I think that's a strong argument. I guess that probably does it for today, but I'm disappointed we don't get to spend another 20 minutes talking about Attack of the Crab Monsters. Uh, well, this is why we have to bring back uh, Trailer Talk, at least in an audio form, so that we will have space for our movie references to breathe. I can't wait. All right. So, hey, in the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. You'll find all of the episodes there. You'll also find blog posts, some other content, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. Great big thank you, as always, to our awesome audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, or to request an episode for the future, or just to say hi and see what's up, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.